0: When I find out there actually was like a kind of a German revolution nineteen nineteen, yeah. I was like, oh, I never knew anything about that. Like if yeah. you think about like regular people's history, it's like World War One, Reparations, <laughs> Hitler, World War Two. It's this unbelievably interesting section of history for about 10 whatever years, yeah, yeah, 15 years. And like unless you're a buff, like a buff, buff, a buff, a buff, yeah. buff, yeah, a, a buff. <laughs> buff? <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the 161st episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Sunday, 13th of June, 2021, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week we talk with Ben Lewis, Germanist, historian, and the man behind Marxism Translated. In this two-parter, second part of which is a patron-only episode, we discuss the insanely complex history of the SPD. We hear how World War One detonated the contradictions in the party and learn the history of their shattered remnants as they got hit again with the secondary impact of the Russian Revolution. The Fundamental Principles book has really got me interested in the history and politics of the Council Communists, so this is a bit of an epic two-parter. If you like what you hear and fancy a listen to part two, why not head on over to the Patreon, fire me a few commie dollar. You'll get access to the entire back catalogue patron-only episodes, the Emancipation Network Discord server, and the weekly reading group of the Fundamental Principles of Communist Production and Distribution. Okay, enough of the hard sell, let's hit the interview. So Ben, we're here to talk about the origins of the Council of Communists and the parties and all that madness that happened in the early 20th century in Germany. I Mm -hmm. suppose To before we get there, we probably should start with the formation of the SPD Mm -hmm. and talk maybe perhaps about the different strands that made that party up initially.
1: Yeah, you're right. You can't. It's what's difficult about approaching these questions. And if you want to look at one particular aspect of the the German workers' movement, it's impossible to separate it out from everything else and its origins, its development, etc. So. You know, the quick kind of crash course history, suppose if you go back to the origins of uh, uh, the SPD, the Erfurt Programme 1891, you know, a, a kind of unashamedly Marxist programme formulated by the leading Marxist thinkers of the time, a role played by Friedrich Engels in, in that as well, um, you know, not, not uncritically, trying to gather the forces of Marxism in Germany and beyond. So if you, you, know, if you take a, stets, a, a step back a couple of years, 1889, the founding of the Second International, was very much the initiative of people like Engels and and his allies to make sure that this was a marxist organization it was defined itself against reformism po- possibilism in france as it was known uh, laborism as it would later become uh, but on the other hand as well anarchism general strikeism etc cetera, et cetera. so it was it was founded on that basis the minimum maximum program et etc cetera, etc cetera. I don't think we need to go into too much detail on that but you know interrupt if you want me to at any point you know that was that was the basis of of the the uh, the SPD in 1891
0: I've a, a quick question then for you Ben was there much different I haven't uh, read the Erfurt program myself is there mm-hmm. much difference between it and the Gotha pro, program
1: yes uh, and and Mark Lisa and, and certainly in the in the the the, the eyes of, of of Engels you know that that was seen the, the shift between the the Gotha program and the uh, and the Erfurt program was seen as a, a as a positive one you know away from some of the phraseology of Lasallianism, which has kind of crept in and yes it's on to a more explicitly marxist basis and understanding and Engels is is on that basis you know he says you know the, the, the new program is, is is steps ahead and it signifies enormous advances on the gotha program theoretically and programmatically absolutely yeah
0: yeah so i'm just uh i have my little crappy version of the gotha program critique of the gotha yeah. program you yeah, know, yeah you're buying some of these random marx ones they're always some very weird publishing houses probably somebody <laughs> in their basement just being printed Reprinted off it. amazon yeah, yeah. yeah but there's a letter marx wrote to a guy here called w Bracker. Wilhelm oh, no. Bracke, yeah. Wilhelm you know. Bracke, okay,
1: yeah,
0: yeah. yeah, exactly. And uh, there's a sentence here he says in it, like it's a kind of a throwaway sentence that kind of essentially to me is like uh, the demise of the SPD in one like kind of sentence. He says, um, one knows that the mere fact of unification is satisfying to the workers, but it is a mistake to believe that this momentary success is not bought too dearly.
1: Is that the story of the the history of the SPD? It's 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 not that it, you, you can't see that so Marx obviously dies before the Airfoot program comes around, right? So you, I I wouldn't say you can see that as there's two questions here. I don't think you could see that as the the problem with the Airfoot program necessarily, although there is an issue there which we maybe come back to. But certainly when it comes to the Gota program, Marx and Engels feel that they're writing from outside of the country, but they feel through their allies, etc., and what they're hearing on the ground that this this step forward in terms of the unity as you say has, has been bought at too much of a cost theoretically there's been too many concessions, et etc et etc. I think probably in hindsight while their their concerns were probably justified they they probably misread the situation on the on the ground and I think that you know the, the gotha represent the, the, the Gotha unification really started to get the bolt the ball rolling not just in Germany then for workers' parties but you know internationally people start looking at this and think, okay yeah this is maybe what we should the kind of things we should be starting to do. So I think there's a slight misjudgment, but in terms of, yes, they they were very much of the view that there's too much the and nonsense in this, you know, the, the ideas that we've been trying to fight for in, in the movement, there's been too many concessions to that, the free people state, you know, all the all the usual, the usual stuff. And, and you know, Marx is quite scathing, isn't he, of all the particular formulations that, you know, the, the nature of wealth and where wealth comes from on nature, et cetera, et cetera. So He's quite miffed by it, uh, but on the the other hand, as you say, recognises that that this is popular amongst the workers and it does get things going. When it comes to the Airfoot programme, I think that, we cannot speak in the same terms because it, certainly from the view, if you read Engels, for example, on this, uh, ob- obviously Marx is dead. He is very clear that this is, this, is a, this is the real deal. This is what we've been about for a long time. It's a big advance on on Goethe, et etc. There are some issues, but the, for Engels, they're not fundamental issues. They're not like he's going through. He's not saying, oh, the effort program is problematic because it, it provides concessions to this idea of the free people state in the Salian ideas. He's saying that basically given the threat of illegality, maybe our stated aim of the democratic republic needs to be reformulated because we've got all the demands in there but we don't explicitly call for what these demands amount to right and he's saying maybe we can find an alternative formulation to avoid illegality again because again you've got to remember that the, the spd in the run-up to this has been outlawed for 12 12 13 years right so this is its post illegality it's, you know, its first legal conference in a while to set its program but yes yeah, so i don't think you can really there is there is an issue there about unity etc but i don't think you 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 can put the 1875 and 1891 on the same plane in that sense. Does does that make sense?
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So we can say then that like the Erfurt program is a... Is in advance on mm-hmm. say from a Marxist point of view from the Gotha critique from the Gotha program. Sorry, the, yeah, the yeah. critique. It's just known as the Gotha. <laughs> we we critique, all know right? it as the critique. Yeah. That's right, <laughs> yeah. exactly.
1: It's a bit like uh, what's his name During. You know, no one in the hell did know no, it. All you can That's right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it was just this weird professor.
0: <laughs> yeah, I wonder who's the During of today. I wonder. Uh, let's not go there. But uh, I have a few nominations. Um, uh, but uh, while the program may have been a, a an advance. That doesn't say too much about though the constituent elements of the party. Say so, right. what would it been at the time then of the Erfurt program? Like, uh, I assume there's still a, a large Lasallian branch or whatever we want to call them, a reformist wing mm-hmm. at that time. What what would the dynamic have been like there?
1: Sure, it's one of the things that struck me in terms of my research on this is that often we see. The problem of reformism or revisionism as a kind of 1890s phenomenon. So obviously the guy that comes to embody that is Eduard Bernstein, who you know, is one of the the, the key Marxist thinkers at this time. He's involved in the effort program, and, and you know in his earlier days he's the, the editor of the illegal newspaper of the party. He's you know, probably one of the most important Marxists of the time, but you know it turns away from his views in the in the late 1890s, etc. And we kind of associate reformism or opportunism or whatever you want to call it within the party with him, which is obviously correct. But it, it should be stressed that the 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 the, the danger of, of rightism and reformism actually has much longer roots. It goes back to the earlier party formation, it goes back to pre effort times too. Uh Marx and Engels, what you know, one of their one of their main aspects of their correspondence basically is trying to rope in parliamentary deputies. Because again, if you think of the the illegal party, the only legal aspect of the SPD, the SAP as it was known at the time, in the the period of illegality is the the parliamentary fraction. So they have enormous power, right? Because otherwise you can't organise, you can't have party branches and meetings, the newspaper has to be smuggled in through the red postal service usually from Switzerland etc cetera, etc cetera. so there's this Marx and Engels themselves are involved not just against the against the Salian ideas but against this kind of tendency particularly amongst parliamentary deputies to make a virtue out of the necessity of parliamentary reform work etc cetera, etc cetera, and to rein them in so of, you're right there are there's always that problem I don't think you know. Uh, the, the, I was re- rereading my uh, the, the my Halle book and Znamoviev yesterday uh, just in preparation for this, so I'm re- jogging my memory. And it, there's a wonderful of quote. He says, "You know, you can accept eighteen thousand conditions, revolutionary conditions, uh, and still be a Kautskyite," as he puts it. Right? in, this is in 1920. So you're right. You know, you can have the most perfect program uh, and ideas, et cetera. But how does that then run off in practice? And, you know, this has a long history, particularly amongst the parliamentary faction when they were so powerful and were the de facto leadership of the party in the illegality. Right. So there's there's a, a deeper history here. It's not as if, you know, only in the 1890s do we get reformist voices, etc. It's got a bit bit of a longer, longer standing history. I would say La Sallinism certainly, you can't say it's really dead, but but it, it, the, the strange thing about La it really achieved the state, La achieved like a cult status, which is difficult to fathom. From to you know, again, you think of modern; <laughs> it's hard to think of contemporary examples in the work of you know contemporary figures that are just you know. Uh, I, again, I'm I'm not very much on popular culture, but you know, these people that, that are deities essentially. Yes. Yeah, exactly. You know, this, this, this exactly. You know, you could, you would definitely see a lot of TikToks with LaSalle and, do you know what I mean? All these different things. He, he, he was <laughs> that's really. <laughs> a, that's a new, that's a new stream of TikToks, you know. <laughs> maybe you could, <laughs> maybe you could take that as a snippet. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like uh, you know.
0: the, the, the CCP on the LaSalle and uh, TikTok <laughs> Uh
1: But you know, this guy was the, the you know, incredible figure in many ways. And, but you know, it, it, he, um, he achieved this cult following, which also had a kind of weird aspect to it as well. You know, he did run a, a sect quite successfully. But but I would say that while Lasallian ideas you know could be still present in some of the ideas of the deputies, etc., really the the that whole run-up to air for it is a in you know, a hammering of Lasallian ideas, and really you don't see you know people really proclaiming the the openly proclaiming the legacy of Sal Lasal. However, as you will know, you know, there's that very famous picture of Wolsa Luxembourg speaking. And an agitation that you would often see the picture of marx this is like 1904 1905 and there'd be a picture of lasalle as well so there is that that aspect to it but i think it was more ceremonial than than anything
0: how much of you know like in capitalism you know we have all these pressures on the superstructure yeah. and culture how much of lasallianism did kind of die with lasalle and how much of it
1: morphed into a revisionism that's difficult. It's difficult to put a kind of, um, a quantity on that, right? But I, I would certainly say that, you know. The, the immediate successor to Lasalle was Schweitzer, who was all, uh, uh, Johann Baptist von Schweitzer, another kind of aristocratic uh, type uh, background. Very, again, very interesting guy, hom- homosexual. Uh, um, you know, in, in really kind of interesting background. How he got to where he was, but I think the, the, the just maybe the momentum of, of I would say, really the, the 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 ground is taken from beneath the feet of the Salianism. It was a kind of sect project, right? And I think that you know, once you get these movements to mass organizations, that really says. So, in that sense, that's where Marx and Engels misread the situation, I think, because while they were right about the the, the ongoing influence of La the fact that this party starts to emerge and becomes big actually t- kind of takes away the basis of La Now, when it comes to reformism, I think that the the, the 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 opportunists, the revisionists, that then later emerge. Maybe we can go roll forward slightly here they do not necessarily or consciously draw their ideas from LaSalle. There are other tendencies. So for example, Fabianism is a big influence on Edward Bernstein. Having said that though, it is interesting because one of the things that Bernstein does, one of the uh, actually very uh, a decent book he wrote was a book on LaSalle, I think from 1904, so one of the things he does when he's going through his particular journey away from Marxism to become the kind of founding father of revisionism is to produce this book on on the soul. So yeah, so, so there, there is that that legacy, if you like. But I don't think we can we can really say okay opportunism reformism equals the legacy of of lasallianism it's a lot more complicated than that and takes a a number of different forms so you have to also you know uh, i've been translating some parvis recently anti-revisionist writers really really good stuff on revisionism and he he distinguishes between different uh, strands of revisionism right there's also less theoretical or consciously theoretical but he calls practical revision which is just about people trying to say how do we get the best reform possible within this you know people like Ignatz Auer etc you know how do we get the best possible reform in this particular juncture which has a long history it's not really the that in that sense consciously or unconsciously but there is that that, that tension. So I, I think it's, you know, I'm, I'm always wary about these things of the, the history of ideas. It, it, we shouldn't. We should be careful to say, oh, uh, revisionism, 1914. This compromise that the start. Finally, the SPD reflects a because I think uh, there's a, a lot of water goes under the bridge before then, right? And there's different forms. That's what I would say.
0: Like at what stage then would you say that the party became a party more of revisionism than
1: say Marxist strategy? Say. Mm-hmm. This is, a, a, again, a tricky question. I, I think it's also a question that doesn't, you can't really answer in some ways, right? Because clearly revisionism, it, it, it's a strange one, because revisionism theoretically, programmatically, is defeated over and over and over again, right? So so in, in terms of the, 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 the current around Bernstein and, and others, they never achieve a majority of the organisation, they never change the fundamentals of the party programme, right? And in in that sense, you know, I, I would I would consider the SPD a Marxist organization in 1914, because again, the way we tend to read this is like, okay, so you've got these problems with reformism, and then we get to the war, and the party's you know, majority reformist or majority opportunist, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And if we if we look at the closer history, it's really not that straightforward, because while you do have, you know, obviously that the policies of civil peace. The party goes in with the war effort it militarizes the party fundamentally as well gets rid of opposition etc that is on the basis of of the leadership and there is a huge response to that in the rank and file we also have to remember that you know there, there are a number of contingent factors that relate to the war that may have seen things play out slightly differently i think it always would have come to a split that's undeniably the case. Right. But it could have split in different in different circumstances, not just forced by the war, which is actually a, a kind of what you know what you could call a, a defeat split or a, defli- a, or a split that isn't really on the left's terms because they're reacting to a crisis. Right. But, you know, just a few weeks before, and this has been documented by uh, a historian whose name is currently escaped, me. It, it'll come back to me in a second. Basically, the SPD even at the leadership level, is talking about, well, how do we organise general strikes against the war, against the outbreak of war, right? There are some contingency factors there that play in that could have seen things uh, happen differently. So I think it's, it's wrong to say, oh, when does it become a majority revisionist organisation? Because it, maybe that misses the, the, the essence of what's going on, in a sense, right? Because you do have this leadership that goes in with the war effort and fundamentally changes the party, but immediately you have a reaction. And I think that reflects the fact that, you know, the, the, still a bit large swathes of the party uphold the the, the principles, the airfoot program, uphold the principles of, of of Marxism in some form. Then as you go through, it gets a bit more complicated. We'll maybe come on to that later about the different layers, how they understand what that means in the context of, of, of the struggle against the First World War. Does it mean uh, pacifism? Does it mean revolutionary internationalism, what about Russia, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I would say that you know, that reformism comes to dominate the party in a way that maybe people don't see. And you can certainly also make the case, and I think that that's, I would, even though I'm someone who's very much a big fan of Kautsky and translated a lot of his work, there is a sense in which the Marxist leadership gradually capitulates to to reformist pressures. So for example, you know, just take a silly example, the party leadership when it comes to the road to power very, you know, classic standard Marxist text, very readable, uh, the party leadership says to Kautsky, you need to make some revisions. You, and, he, and, he, and he bows to that, right? So there's different versions of Krubert, as uh, I think it's translated in English as well, has done the various drafts and the letters from the party leadership to Kautsky. So there are certain manifestations of this kind of drift, but I wouldn't say, oh, in 1907, we now see that the do you know what I mean, have got a majority, but there's a gradual morph, but it's it, it's... It's open ended. It's contingent, and it can it it could have gone different ways depending on concrete results. I think, and the 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 tragedy was it happened as a result of World War One.
0: Yeah. So, like, then at what stage? Because, like, from a, from a, like a more of a political economy position, say, yeah. it seems the party kind of fully went in behind, say, a, a kind of Hilferding analysis right. of capitalism, which to me is you know, quite far from, like, Marx's position. Like, sure. at, at what point did that become dominance? Even if, like, you could still call yourself revolutionary and be a Hilferding uh, dude, but, like, in, in essence, that that kind of leads
1: to a certain kind of revisionism all of its own. Sure. No, that, that's right. And, and again, you can look at all... There are different manifestations on the theoretical level. So I mentioned one about the road to power and the, le- the legality question, right, which is pr- brought up. And yes, of course, and th- this is actually some of the points that, that are, are well made, not just by Luxembourg but others on on the left as well. About, for example, the struggle against imperialism, right? So that the, the the struggle against imperialism isn't just a question of arguing for peace or freeing freeing the colonies in in in, the, in a kind of isolated sense, but it's a struggle against the world capitalist system. And yes, there are certain aspects of Hilfergin, Hilferdingisms, Kautsky's conception. I mean, this is complete collapse in 1914 that basically, you know, the McDonald's theory of war. So, you know, basically two advanced capitalist countries will never really go to war with each other because why? Why do they need to? And then I think he publishes that in maybe July of 1914 or so, it's literally a couple <laughs> Bad of weeks timing. exactly you know you couldn't get any worse timing Um, so of course there are, there are there are a number of theoretical manifestations of that drift to the, of that drift to the right but again i think that would it would be it would be too straight line history of ideas type stuff to say okay this is a manifestation of the salianism or this is can be traced back to x i think it's a gradual process which again is contested so it's not as if you know Hilferding's theories on uh, imperialism weren't contested. I mean, you you look at the Daniel Guido and Richard Day volume, Discovering Imperialism for Historical Materialism huge debates, you know, and in, in, so it, these things were uh, were uh, contested as well, constantly contested through the party. It wasn't if everyone said, oh yeah, Hilferding or Kautsky on imperialism, oh, that's the way to go. It, it, do, do you see what I mean? The, the, these things were a living, breathing entity, and I think one of the one of the main issues I have with historiography of the Second International is that it precisely is done on these terms of, oh, there was opportunism, and then opportunism won, and then, you know, that's what we had.
0: Yeah, I know. It's like we, the periodization is 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 like... And now we are in revisionism.
1: <laughs> that, that, that's right. But but, it, but, but but the question itself is, is fundamentally important. And I think my, my more fundamental point would be actually we still do not know the true extent of the cancer of opportunism and how it grew and how it met at side, whatever exactly. it's called, you know, how it got across the party. Because we, a lot of the stuff, the, the, the debates, etc., and the newspaper and the resolutions and all the rest of it, we that we aren't really familiar with. Even people like me who've been working on this stuff for quite some time. There's a lot of material.
0: I have a question for you then. Something yeah, yeah. that I don't hear people coming up. But it's not in the in the question. No, no, no. Fine. It's prepared, so we'll see. <laughs> um, but it's like uh, it's something that's been I've been interested in. Is like exactly like what was the democratic nature of the SPD? How leadership dominant or how base? How powerful was the base? And and, and you know what was the story with that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it would. I, I think broadly speaking, follow the standard practices of the Second International. So you would have your regular party congresses you would have party branches you'd have a whole load, host of party publications so you would you would have a strong democratic base and actually that's one of the things if we look at the policy of, if we look at 1914 one of the things that does shift almost overnight at the behest of the the army and navy supreme command and the kaiser is the party becomes a lot more bureaucratic pretty much overnight, right? So there's these, you know, people will, uh, you know, branches will be expelled, branches would uh, withhold funds they would with their membership funds, etc. That would be one reaction. Newspapers, they initially wanted to, to they didn't want to crack down too much because they didn't want to unite all of the opposition. You've got to remember as well, the leadership is clever, because they also see that people like Luxembourg and people like Kautsky don't have the same politics, or people like Zetkin and people like Hilferding don't have the same politics so it's about it, it, so they they were they were rather cautious but one of the things that they they had to do by charged by their their masters was to crack down precisely on the on the party life itself which you know had strong branches had strong democratic structures had uh, you know sovereign party congresses but also had its own party life, right, beyond the branches in, in the alternative culture, as Liebka calls it, etc. So th- that was one of the things they recognized they had to do. And then when push came to shove, when the war really started to hit and the shortages, the repression, the carnage, really, that people were experiencing in their lives, that's when they really had to say, okay, Dinoitzeit's got to go. Kautsky's got to go. Even someone like Kautsky has got to go. And he's 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 uh, fired, right, from from the publication. Zetkin's editorship of the, the Gleichheit, the women's magazine, she's fired on the, on the spot, 1917. So there is that, the, the, the party then becomes more of a shell. It becomes a bit more like the party that we, I mean, not that really we recognise now, because the SPD is just, you know, but may, maybe the kind of po- post World War II, Cold War. So, so I think, you know, that's one of the changes you can see. I'm not saying before that it's this kind of perfect institution. There was a powerful bureaucracy. You had something like 15,000 full timers right which what? does yeah you know it's, it's, it's it was huge I mean you, you try and get the, the I was rereading my book wow. on that you know it's a huge apparatus and obviously that's sociologically speaking politically speaking that represents an issue because how accountable is this apparatus you know what's wow. its living conditions etc that's certainly one of the uh, and again I've never really found satisfactory answers to this I'm still searching but you know certainly if you look at Zanoviev's book The Social Roots of Opportunism he looks at, you know, the, the the social structure of the SPD. When you have an organization that is that big, that is that powerful, has over 100 daily newspapers, right? You, you, to sustain that, you do need some, you know, you do need an apparatus. But the question is, how accountable is it? How does it change? Even going back, for example, to the revisionist debate, one of the things that Parvis locates about the revisionist debate is that Bernstein stuff opens the party to all sorts of careerists and people who aren't haven't got the slightest interest in you know uh, uh, the, revolution. the revolution, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Let alone you know uh, a theory of capitalism or whatever. They they're there because they think, oh, you know, I can do something good and I can have a good uh, career and I can become famous and important and well known and respected and So, you know, there are these sociological changes too. So I'm not saying, oh, brilliant, and then 1914 and they crack down the (laughs) the party's uh, uh, shifts. But it's one of the things that strikes me is that the, as I say, at the behest of the Kaiser and the generals, there is a crackdown in the SPD democracy.
0: So they must have had, like, the party obviously had, like, executive functions where they were able to perform certain actions, you know, completely away from this idea of, like, a general assembly once a year or whatever, a congress. That yeah. allowed them to perform a lot of these actions, or, or they just had the power to perform these actions? Which is it? Is it more they had the power, or more they actually had that executive function? If you know what I mean.
1: I, I think I think it's 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 more the executive because you know that would be the, the again the classical second international view of things, right? Is that you, the the con, the Congress is sovereign, the Congress reflects the will of the of of the membership and then the leadership that is selected from that and its various functions, that is basically the sovereign body between the Congresses, right? So yes, they would have the remit to do so. And then, but then of course the question is, are they acting in accordance with the will of the party? And are they accountable on that basis? And again, that would be the role of the, uh, of the party Congress to reconvene. And that's one of the things, again, I haven't followed this in detail, but if you look at the 1914 stuff, it's then the response of the branches, the resolutions. should we still give them... You know, the usual kind of stuff that you you see in a very attenuated form, even in the Labour Party today, right? About, you know, how do you respond to ex-politician being an arsehole or whatever? You know, how do you respond to that? Uh, and yes, yeah, so... But but I think classically, yes, Congress is is sovereign, meets once a year for six days or whatever, and then you have your, your leadership in between. Yeah, for sure.
0: How many full-timers is there in the Labour Party,
1: do you reckon? I don't know. I have no idea. I think... It must be less than than that, mustn't it? Oh, man.
0: I, I am I mean, surprised like, if it's above 1,000.
1: Yeah, exactly. I was thinking more, more like 2,000, I was thinking. But it may, it may not even be that. I, I I do not know, to be honest with you.
0: And you can see what the... Uh... <laughs> what the full-timers in the Labour Party are like.
1: Well, exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, that that's... So it is it is a sociological issue. Now, some people like Michel, for example, Michel, kind of extrapolates from that the iron law of, oligo- of oligarchy, right? So basically, when you have big institutions, they inherently tend to... Maybe dictatorship is overstating it, but, you know, they, they, t- they inherently tend towards uh, the concentration of power in a few hands, et cetera, et cetera. So that was his response. And I think the left has been a little bit too sympathetic towards that idea actually mm. in terms of its reading of 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 the second international clearly there's something there right that you know you have this huge apparatus a huge party but i think the you know the, the stress on democracy and accountability should be seen as the counterweight to that
0: yeah no it, it seems to me like uh, that the anarchists are 100% onto something mm. but it's like that the issue seems to be nearly not so much hierarchy but more executive function like that there's there seems to be a lack of theoretical approach or insight into like the problems of fast action
1: yeah well, no, I, I agree I, I i think you know that there's something there the, the problem with the anarchists is then there's solutions to it but i think that yeah you know, classically the, the the idea would be that you know that, that you have strong branches strong party life resolutions you you know you can you can elect leaders you can replace them uh, and, and all the rest of it. But I do think that as the party becomes slicker and professional, that, that 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 maybe is lost. And it would be useful to look at that in a bit more time. There are some studies on this in German, but we worth revisiting, I think.
0: On on what in particular?
1: On the sociology of the party. So, for, you know, uh, there was the, the kind of uh, a trend towards social history uh, the, in the 70s and 80s in, in German Western historiography, right, in the, the Bundesrepublik. And they would look at, for example, the party life in Dusseldorf, so they look at all the resolutions and just love the people in Dusseldorf, the the representatives, how long they're in, they they had their posts, etc. So that's a useful way of, of kind of you know microscope history of looking at okay, what was party life on the ground? What was the relationship between the activists and the sympathizers of the party, the activists and the the apparatus of the party, if you want the, the salary professionals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's a good, that's a useful way of looking at it and seeing how the party developed. But maybe it, it lacks that holistic approach and also my my problem with western historiography generally is that it certainly of that period is very dismissive of marxism and the spd so it's more like you know this was this was the kind of spds what would you say Folly of youth, I suppose. <laughs> the, the, you know the, 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 the revolutionary period of the <laughs> yeah, yeah. before it grew up and you know the teenager exactly. Yeah. You know the teenage rebellion. If maybe that's a nicer way of putting
0: it. Yeah, with the <laughs> poster of like a cannabis leaf on their wall. Exactly. That was yeah. The... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting. It'd be interesting to know what the class composition was as well mm-hmm. of the full timers. Did yeah. it did it diverge from the party base?
1: Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm sure it did. I'm, I'm sure it did. And, and, and that, on one level, that's a problem, but it's also something that you know, how do you deal with that problem? Because on one level, it's not that it's certainly from today's perspective, it's not that it's an unavoidable problem. But I was certainly, you know, even, you, you know, you look, at, I've, I've looked at debates in the 1890s at, the, at party congresses and even right wingers. Carl for for example, who is a right wing tra- uh, trade unionist, he's making the point that, look, you know, all the people in this room, pretty much, are, you, you know, are <laughs> yeah. But you know, they, know they've, got a, they've, got a, they've got a decent life because you yeah. know they, they are functionaries, or you know, and you know. So he actually raised the point, and this is, again, something that's worth exploring more. Uh, one of the the, the the points that Engels misses out admits in his critique of the of the Erfurt program, which is again, it shouldn't be seen as this like scathing gother type critique. It's, it's a positive, welcoming critique of it, and it's it's actually during the drafting process itself. But one of the things he misses out is the concept of workers' wage. And if you think how central that was to, to Marx and Engels, for example, in relation to the commune, the Paris commune, that the centrality of the, you know, officials, party officials, public officials on a workers' wage, he doesn't include that in his in his list of demands in the party. And I think, the, you know... It's, it's not that then that's the original sin that everything, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, but it yeah. is it, it is a quite And so you even it's not just the left that's making these points, actually, about, you know, look, at all the people in these rooms, the officials, they have a decent life. You know, life was hard as a German worker in the 1890s. No doubt about that. Right. OK,
0: so let's, I suppose, deal then with the next big event, which is like World War One mm-hmm. and this kind of forcing function, which caused these contradictions to get shattered. Do you yep. want to give us like the, the very quick, uh, compact history of it, and tell mm-hmm. us the initial fragments that are, are are spun to the wind?
1: Sure. So again, so as you say, the the, the nice way you've put it is this big political challenge that's thrown down, and all the all the tensions that are simmering between the service, all these processes we've been discussing, these counter arguments, these, these these contestations really become very direct and real and pose in an immediate sense, life or death type of way, right? So, and it's complicated. Again, this is one of the reasons why we can't just say, oh, look, the left was, was born here in the 1890s. The right came out in the, in the maybe the early 1890s, but because things cross and shift. So, you know, if we take, a, if we talk about two people we've talked about already, Parvus and Bernstein, Bernstein the arch part the father of arch revisionism etc he in fact takes a, a, a line which is closer to the the so-called radicals in the party or the, the what becomes known as the centrist tendency so he kind of reunites with his old friend Karl Kautsky takes more of a pacifist line is horrified by the world war 1 uh, whereas a lot of the people that he had won over and influenced previously are all gung ho for the war right so Bernstein goes through a particular shift And then you've got the left of the party. So the left of the party around uh, Rosa Luxemburg, obviously Rosa Luxemburg goes on to develop the Spartans League, is consistently anti-imperialist with their previous position. But people like Parvus, who quite rightly on the one hand say that imperialism and war are a necessary feature of capitalism in this in, in, in this particular stage of development, as they would put it, they kind of make a, a, a virtue out of that necessity and say, well, oh, and because that's the case, Germany needs to win. Because if Britain wins, we're going to have more of British-style hegemon capitalism. Uh, there's no workers' movement in Britain to speak of. There's no Marxist party in Britain. And there's a reason for that, because Britain is the top dog in the world and shits on everyone else. And unless Germany wins, we're going to have more of the same. So th- there's all sorts of theoretical shifts and twos and fraughts. And as you say, there's that pressure that brings out some of these tensions and the right wing leadership uh, and its supporters, basically, as we've as we've discussed already, crack down on the party uh, and try and steer things in, in the direction of the civil peace, Burgfrieden, or the castle pieces, sometimes it's known, and, you know, everything now must be subordinate to the war effort, including, you know, no workers' action, no strikes, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that brings it all out. So you have the, you know, you have a, a far left that emerges that's been there for a while. It's, you could say there are actually two two elements of the far left. You've got the, the international socialists of Germany around Bremen. You've got Rosa Luxemburg and her allies are in the Spartacus League. You've got the, the kind of center, quite large, substantial section of the party around Kautsky, Hilferding, Bernstein, et cetera who are very critical of this, and then you've got the right-wing uh, leadership, particularly around you know, Noska, all the people that we then come to see in, in the in the First World War. I think that's probably the, the crash course <laughs> of, of the realignments, right, from left left to right. I'm going to have to pick that apart. Um, it's sure. interesting
0: you, sh- you say that uh, about Parvis about him yeah. talking about how he wanted the Germans to win, because yeah. Marx was kind of guilty of some of that kind of stuff himself. Like, around, the, was it 1870, he was like, you know, the... The, the Germans Prussian, need to yeah, give yeah, the, a, the French War. a good, a good spanking. You know, so it's kind of it's it, it, it's interesting. It's just interesting when you said that uh, how it, mm. it chimed with like, uh, like it, it would be hard to think that Marx would be in favor of World War <laughs> One. Mm, that,
1: uh, that's right. That's right.
0: But you know, it's not very far from Marx's logic.
1: I, I think. I think the thing about World War One though, was it, it was it was different, and I think for some people. Genuinely, for some people, it was an honest mistake about going along with it at first because they saw it more in those in those Franco-Prussian war type terms. Right. And it wasn't that it was never going to be that kind of conflict for all sorts of uh, reasons. And some of them went along with it and then realized, actually, though, this isn't going to be a quick (laughs) thing. This is this is going to redefine the world. And so I think that there is that. So I think some people did go along with it. it like even Karl Liebknecht voted for the war credits. He went along with party discipline in August 1914. Right. So there are these questions. Then you've got the whole question of Russia and a war against absolutist reaction, for example. So you know Babel, uh, August Babel, the leader, then probably the most important politician in the SPD from a Marxist perspective. He, you know, before he's not alive at this point, but he says famously, I think in 19. Maybe it is in discussions about the coming war that's going to happen. You know, he says, I'll personally take up myself, he's an old man, but then I'll take up a rifle against the Russians if they come to Germany. But of course, the war doesn't play out like that, right? It it basically bogged down in trench warfare. Uh, Germany, there isn't a a kind of self defense aspect to it, as some of the, the people supporting the war would say. And so, but yeah, the, the question of, of war and imperialism is, is one that, that, that has a has a history. I think Marx and Engels were well Marx was wrong on, on the Franco-Prussian War, and obviously Babel and Leibniz go to prison as a result. I think they abstain on the on the war credits vote, right, in 1870. So you know that, that was more of the approach. And actually, if you come to the if you fast forward to 1914, Kautsky's approach, most people think Kautsky supported the war. He didn't. Kautsky's approach was actually, we need to follow more and the, the, we need to take more the line of uh, Liebnecht and Babel in 1870 and abstain, which, OK, you may see is a weak position, of course, you know, but that was his kind of logic. And that, that he was advising the parliamentary deputies as one of his roles in the party. Uh, but they end up uh, voting for the war credits. And that then obviously then as a result of that, the SPD, you see that shift quickly, because once you go down that route, the SPD then has, has to approve national budgets. Because, obviously when you go into a war you need to rebudget your, your entire uh, economy and you know the spd votes for a national budget i think in 1915 maybe towards the end of 1914 for the very first time as a party right they always rejected the in the national war budget in the war yeah but they, and they always rejected the national budget it was just like a you know even even the right wingers would do that they, they 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 had slight differences about the local budgets which they thought oh maybe we could support those uh the state budgets but national budget was always rejected but then they they jump in with it
0: how much then of debate was there in the SPD ranks about like the changing nature of war? Like, did they were they asleep to the kind of the impact of mechanization of weaponry and stuff like that? Like mm. like was that an
1: issue? Were they blind to the progress of war technology or no i i don't think so i i mean again you can, you can even think of if you go back to engels engels is writing i think in eighteen ninety uh, can europe disarm eighteen ninety two i think it is the, the text and you know he talks about you know the possibility of the the looming danger of a of a big conflict in Europe, which will lead to millions of deaths. I mean, literally what he says, right, you know, and he says, I don't know how this will play out, but this is a real possibility on the continent. And so I don't think, you know, maybe there was some kind of naivety on those who tried to play down the the question. But again, even those supporting the war have to make the case, will make the case that, you know, this is an existential threat to Germany and the SPD, ergo, we have to be, you know, class collaborationist, right? So I think everyone was kind of attuned to the to the nature of warfare in that in in that era i think probably the american civil war uh, was one of the wake-up moments for that right i mean i'm not a war historian but i I or even
0: or even napoleon i think i heard some statistic recently that like the debt per capita from the napoleonic wars like in the 1815 or 18 whatever they were of a
1: scale similar to the first world war right right well
0: on the per capita level it's kind of yeah, I was that's, kind of surprised by you know,
1: that. Scary, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, Germany, it, it, you know, it was uh, some towns were basically wiped out. Uh, you know, in the, in, in the nineteenth century, I mean, it was you know, yeah. So so yeah, I, I think. I, so I don't think there was there, there, there was a, a naivety or the, you know people being oblivious to these dangers. Uh, I just think that there was maybe on the part of those who honestly went along with it. First of all, there was a miscalculation of what that war would represent. It didn't represent Germany being invaded on in all fronts, etc., etc. You know that's not how the war played out in the end.
0: I don't know if you've ever seen this picture. Let me see if I can share the screen here with you. I think you'd like this if you haven't seen it before. It's the greatest infographic ever. Let's see here. So wow. this is like a famous graph by this guy, I think it's Minard, and mm-hmm. uh, he was like kind of the father of graphs and it's it the graph is essentially uh why you don't invade uh Russia <laughs> during the winter. And you can see the the start Oof. of the graph over here. It's like 422,000 and it's uh, toward the orange bit. That's when they left. Where are they? They're, it's got the map, Kowno. It's probably, it's probably uh, I've seen Poland somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, Kovno. And, uh, and he goes all the way over. And you can see by the time he gets to Moscow, he's down to 100,000. And then they turn around and the, the graph <laughs> gets smaller and smaller. Oh, dear. And by the time, you see, by the time they get back to where they left off, they got 10,000 men out of 422,000. Wow. So they've lost 98%. And like you see on the bottom here, it has a temperature going along on the bottom here. And you can basically I see, see yeah, yeah, yeah. as the temperature goes down, they all start dying. <laughs> you can see. And then it's got like the, you know, the the maps overlaid and I, it's got some other stuff. So it's like, it's I think, technically, I think it's got seven dimensions in the one thing. Wow. And you can just look at it in a second and just go, oh yeah, don't go to Russia, lads. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's an amazing graph.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's fantastic.
0: Yes, uh, it's so detailed as well. On this episode, you heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters and Night of the Purple Moon by Sunra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our Network Sister Podcasts, General Intellect Unit, jumpsuit utopia mortal science and swampside chats and if you'd like to help out the show please remember to head over to patreon and throw me a few commie dollar